Hey everyone, this is Nick and welcome back to your Linux and open source news podcast. And this week we have some interesting developments for open source as Docker Hub moves against their free organization account, which means that most open source projects will not be able to use it without paying. We have Ubuntu and Debian fighting against PIP, the Python package manager, because it causes a lot of issues on their distros. And we have the release of Fedora 38 Beta, plus Thunderbird unveiling some work on their Android app, Microsoft doing AI totally irresponsibly, and more. So, as a reminder, all the links I use to write this podcast are in the show notes. And as another reminder, this show is for now completely user-funded. And if you wanted to stay this way without sponsors and ads, there's a link to my Patreon page on the show notes as well. So, let's begin. So you probably already know about Docker Hub, which is basically a giant website where you can create an account and host your Docker images and distribute them to other people or keep them to yourself. And Docker Hub lets you create a personal account as a personal user with very limited features and a a very limited feature set and bandwidth capabilities. Or you could create an organization account which lets you have more images, distribute them to more people, have more bandwidth, etc, etc. And this organization feature was used by a lot of open source projects because, well, it was free of charge and it really suited the way they wanted to work. Now, Docker Hub also had a open source focused policy for organizations, but this policy was and still is completely out of touch with how open source works. Because basically, if you make a single cent of money through sponsors, through donations, through sales of services or merchandises or anything, you are not eligible to have that free open source organization account. Which means that most open source projects just used the regular organization account that was free of charge. But this has now changed. Docker Hub is now deleting all these accounts. They just sent an email to everybody who was using a free organization account telling them that they would remove these accounts and delete all attached Docker images if they didn't upgrade to a paid plan. And these paid plans are not nothing. Uh, They start at 420 US dollars per year, which is a lot of money for open source projects, even open source projects that do make a tiny bit of money through sponsors. You could, for example, generate, I don't know, uh, $700 per year uh, on your on your project, on your open source project, or even a thousand. But if you have to subtract $420 per year to that, then yeah, you're not left with a lot of cash and it doesn't really make sense to have your sponsors and donors just pay for your use of Docker Hub and nothing else. It's not a good use of their money. And as a developer, it puts a huge dent in your funding. So basically that's what they've done. And It sucks because this system was used by a lot of open source projects to distribute Docker images, which are very, very useful in open source. And another thing that is kind of sucky with that is that basically once the account is deleted, there's nothing in place to prevent a malicious actor to jump in, use the same name that the project was using, and start distributing corrupted or malicious Docker images in their name. 
So if I was, I don't know, let's let's imagine Ubuntu. It's not the case, they're not doing that. But let's imagine it's I'm Ubuntu. I have some Docker images for my distro and for some systems. My account gets deleted because I can't pay. I don't know, I'm a variant of Ubuntu that has no money. The minute my account is deleted, I'm a popular account. A malicious person will recreate it and start distributing corrupted images that do the same thing as what they're supposed to do, but with some malware in it. That's a big security risk. Now, apparently the CTO of Docker uh, said that they would not let anyone reuse the names of projects that are terminated, but they just said that on Twitter as an informal commitment. It's not put in writing. It hasn't been officially announced either. So for now, it's in the air. And it's not the right solution because what if an open source project decided, well, you know what, we're just going to move to the personal account, which, okay, it's limited, but our users will understand those limitations. Well, they won't be able to recreate that account, will they? Because the name is just not available anymore. So they need to convert these organization accounts into personal accounts, at least, instead of just booting them off of the platform. So, yeah, Docker is a startup. It's funded by venture capital, and probably they didn't have enough earnings to post, and so they decided, okay, what's using a lot of bandwidth and storage space? Okay, we have a lot of organization accounts that are not paying, And so the VC investors just said, well, boot them off. They're not making you any money. You're wasting resources. You're wasting our venture capital money. So stop that. Focus on things that are making money so you can pass some growth. And when you go public, we'll make a ton of money out of that. That's the rational here. And so I understand, yes, they do have to make money. But this should have been coupled with let's say, a more lenient policy towards open source projects. Uh, I don't know, maybe a funding cap or something? Because right now, if you want to use those open source organization accounts, you basically have to make zero money or to have your project donated to one of the open source foundations, uh, like the Free Software Foundation, for example, which is not how most open source projects work. They all get a little bit of donations, of sponsorships or of money, on the site, and they are not all part of a big giant foundation that manages the projects for them. So they just don't understand their own ecosystem, which is stupid. Or maybe it's on purpose to avoid having all these accounts that are not paying and are just open source projects. In any case, what you can do is maybe use GitHub instead to distribute container images, or at least maybe try to recreate a personal account with the same name to avoid malicious actors squatting on that name and distributing stuff maliciously. Okay, our second topic is the Fedora 38 beta. It is now available, you can download it. There's a link in the show note to their release announcement where you will be able to find all the downloads. And it's not just Fedora Workstation, they updated all their various variants and use cases. Uh, So there's also the server beta, there's also a beta for the Internet of Things, if people are still interested in that. Uh, There's a version for cloud, there's a minimal version called Core OS, and all the various spins of the distro are also available as the beta for Plasma, for XFC, Mate, Cinnamon, Sway, i3, LXD, LXQT, which I thought both of them were the same thing, but they just changed names, but apparently not. Well, basically all the variants are here. I didn't see a budgie spin just yet available, so maybe it's not ready yet. I know there should have been an official budgie spin for Fedora 38, but maybe it got delayed. Now, of course, the highlight here is the workstation distro, which is, well, the basically the desktop distribution. It's called Fedora Workstation. It's the non, um, 
non-silver uh, blue version, the non-containerized, uh, the non-immutable system version, the workstation one. It's the one I use on all my computers currently. And its highlight is GNOME 44, uh, with the background app support, with the refined quick settings, with a better lock screen, better accessibility, updates to the apps, etc, etc. So it's it's the Fedora 38 flat, flat pack. What the hell am I saying? It's the Fedora 38 beta that I'm going to download and that I'm going to use to review GNOME 44 for next week and write my video on it. Uh, it's going to be an easy thing to do. Uh, they also changed other things apart from the desktop. Uh, first, enabling third-party repositories will now enable FlatHub in its entirety. Uh, at install, when you checked enable third-party repos on Fedora, you previously enabled some Fedora, I, I don't think it was RPM Fusion, but there were some non-free repositories, and there was their FlatHub sub... How do we call it? Uh, their FlatHub sub... Sub bar basically option. They, they, they just had a subset of FlatHub applications that they enabled. Now they will enable full-on FlatHub, which is much better because in one click you basically get all the Linux applications you might want to install. Now they also updated, of course, all the packages in the repos, and these packages are now built using frame pointers. Their frame pointers are enabled, which means that developers should be able to use that to profile the performance of their application way more easily, which is really cool. They also build their packages with stricter compiler flags, so you should not be able to do some buffer overflow in the package manager, which also uses Sequoia-based uh, OpenPGP parsers. Uh, instead of their own implementation, so it should be easier to maintain because they are not redeveloping something that already exists. Should be easier to maintain, and so it should be more secure as well to check on the on the security keys when you add new repositories, for example. Now you can download this beta already. You can test things out if you want. I know I will uh, to play around with GNOME 44, and if I like what I see as soon as Fedora 38 is available, I will upgrade all my computers to it. Generally, a Fedora upgrade is completely painless. You just click one button, it reboots, and everything that used to work still works, and you get the new features. I've never had an issue moving from 36 to 37, and I don't think uh, on any of my computers, so I don't think this one will be any different. Now, one distro that I very rarely talk about is OpenSUSE, but it seems like it's growing a lot in terms of popularity. And the fact that I'm not talking about it that much isn't because I don't like it or because it's bad or anything, it's just because I don't really give it a shot or enough attention. Uh, I should probably try and add some more uh, blogs and websites about OpenSUSE to get more up to date on what they're doing because it's just transparent for me. It just never appears in any of the media, articles, blogs, websites that I follow. No one ever talks about it. So maybe I should just follow the source and see what they're doing because I basically don't know. Uh, it's always been one of the big old distributions. It already existed when I started using Linux in 2006 and it still exists today. And apparently it's going really strong these days. Uh, the number of downloads for their regular version, the called, uh, called um, not Tumbleweed, uh, Leap, sorry, OpenSUSE Leap, which is basically their like Ubuntu model. It's a fixed version every six months, I think. Uh, the Tumbleweed release is their rolling release model. So downloads for OpenSUSE Leap uh, have nearly doubled since June 2022, which means there's a lot more interest, at least. It doesn't mean that everybody who downloaded uh, who downloaded OpenSUSE Leap still runs it today, 
but it means that there's still a lot of interest in that distribution. And the article I read uh, makes that conjecture that people are using Ubuntu a lot, but Ubuntu is making a lot of unpopular decisions uh, with uh, forcing snaps instead of Debian packages, uh, with the booting Flatpak off of the various flavors, uh, with the way they handle their desktop and the lack of innovation in there. And they're basically making the assumption that people who like having a distro backed by a company that is stable, that is trustworthy, uh, they would turn to OpenSUSE instead of turning to Ubuntu because it's basically the same model, the same stability. There's a company behind it. It's, it's a big name, but it's not making as weird choices as Ubuntu is, basically. And I don't know if that conjecture is true at all or not. Uh, I have no insight in who is downloading OpenSUSE or why. So if you are using OpenSUSE and if you moved from Ubuntu to OpenSUSE, maybe you can confirm uh, this speculation from the article I used uh, to, to get this piece of news. But what is sure is that download numbers don't lie. And if they nearly doubled in less than a year, it means that a lot more people are interested in what OpenSUSE is doing. Apparently downloads for Tumbleweed, the rolling release model, have stayed very stable, so it's not that people want specifically a rolling release model from OpenSUSE, although I heard some great things about Tumbleweed. Uh, but yeah, it just seems that people are interested in OpenSUSE, and it honestly rekindled my interest as well, because I have just not given any time to OpenSUSE on my channel since I started it five years ago. I never made a video about it. I don't think I ever talked about it in any news video or anything. So maybe it's time I just looked at it and, and made a review and see if it's any good. Because I think the last time I tried it, Novel was still the owner of OpenSUSE. So it, it's really been a long while. Now, still on the topic of distros, it looks like Debian and Ubuntu are getting a bit fed up uh, with Python problems on their distros. Ubuntu and Debian use Python for a lot of things out of the box. They pre-install Python and they have a lot of modules uh, for Python in their package manager. But it's in a package manager on a fixed version, which means that a lot of people are not satisfied with the version of Python that is shipped and they want to use newer modules, maybe for development. The problem is if you use pip for that, which is the Python package manager basically, if you use pip install, to install modules and install newer versions of Python, chances are you will overwrite your existing install of Python on Ubuntu and Debian and thus break a lot of things. And going back on that Python install is extremely hard because generally you need the older version of Python to roll back to this older version of Python. Uh, it's exactly like if you uninstall Python using pip, uh, to reinstall Python you'll need Python, so it's not just not gonna work. It's this kind of stuff that is probably annoying them. Uh, I had plenty of problems with Python on Ubuntu and Debian, and even the CTO of my previous company, which is a good friend, which has been using Linux basically forever, he's one of the initial creators of Linux Mint and Cinnamon, uh, even he had issues with Python on his own system, and he had to basically go download a binary of Python and replace it in the right place to be able to fix his issue. It's a big problem. And so Debian and Ubuntu are tired of the ease with which you can break their systems using pip. And so they will very likely adopt a new proposal, which is part of the Python Enhancement Proposals or PEPs. Uh, this is PEP number 668. 
and it will basically mark all the Python base environments that are pre-installed on the distro as externally managed, which means that they will not be able to be overwritten by anything. And they also won't allow pip install use for users and administrators by default. Apparently Fedora 38 is also interested. There's been a proposal uh, for that version to enable the same feature set basically, or, or the same limitations, uh, but it hasn't been accepted in Fedora just yet. Uh, whether it seems that in Ubuntu 23.04 and Debian 12, this will go through and this will happen. Uh, which means that it leaves you with a few alternatives. Uh, if you really need to use pip and install Python modules that are not provided in your uh, in your distributions repo, uh, well, you can you could set up a development environment using something like DistroBox, uh, basically using another distro in a container with which you can play around and do anything you like. You could use pipx, which does the same thing as pip, but creates an isolated environment that will not mess up your system install. Or you could just keep using the regular pip install, but you'll have to append an option, which is uh, dash dash break dash system dash packages uh, when you try to install something. So you very consciously know that you're probably going to destroy your system. And some people might think that this is an intrusion by the distro into their freedom, because Linux always had the freedom of breaking your own system. Uh, it's, it's easy on Linux if you follow stupid guides or if you don't know what you're doing, or even if you just want to do it, it's easy to completely wreck your system. It's one command line away. Very easy. Uh, as somebody said, I think it was Daniel Foray, the creator of Elementary OS, Linux is a very good provider of foot guns with which you shoot yourself in the foot. But, in the feet, sorry. Uh, but honestly, since Debian packages are, and the Debian package system, is already very prone to being broken by external dependencies, third-party repos. It's not super solid and robust. I personally think that having this is a good thing. If you like your Debian packages, then you should use the Python modules in those Debian packages. Maybe find a third-party repo that adds the modules you need, uh, but a third-party repo that is compatible with your version of the distro where stuff has been carefully packaged for your distribution you probably should not be using an external package manager just for one specific kind of software. Uh, stuff like NPM, stuff like PIP, are a surefire way to create issues if you're not 100% sure of what you're doing. If you're an experienced developer, if you know what you're doing, well, have at it. You know what you're doing. If you break your system, you know how to repair it. But for most people who use Debian, well, maybe not Debian, but for Ubuntu, is Ubuntu is targeted towards basic regular users that might not have that level of knowledge, might not know how to fix their system. And so I think it's a good thing to have that extra security to make sure that they just don't destroy their whole desktop by trying to install a Python module because they wanted to play around with an app that has not been packaged. And honestly, if you like those good old Debian packages and the packaging system, then that's what you should use. You should accept that they don't have everything and that they don't have every single new version because that's not what they were designed for. Uh, they have advantage, but their disadvantage is that their versioning is pretty much fixed in place on most distributions. And so you have to work within that problem. Trying to replace everything that your system ships with newer versions means that basically you should not be using a system based on Debian packages and, and using that. You should be using a rolling release, something like Arch, or, or maybe even Tumbleweed. 
that's basically it. Uh, and also, those limitations in the package versions and the updates are why other installation methods were created, like Flatpak. Now, let's talk desktop environments, and we're gonna start with KDE. So, the team is still hard at work on working on Plasma 6. Uh, they don't have all that much to announce on it yet, uh, but they have been fixing a lot of issues for Wayland sessions, and these issues won't just be fixed in Plasma 6, they will be backported to 5.27 in the next point release, I think it's 5.27.4. Uh, and there's an in, there's a few there are a few interesting ones in there. Uh, there's basically fixes to the robustness of multi-monitor setups. Uh, 5.27 already brought a way more resilient way of handling multi-monitor setups, but now they also fixed a bunch of stuff. Let's say a, a bunch of edge cases, like for example, multiple monitors have the same EDID values. Uh, Plasma was not very sure of how to handle that. Now it's fixed and it will do just fine. If you were using different scaling values on different monitors, uh, GDK apps might not behave like they should, so now it's going to be fixed as well. Uh, they fixed a crash on the Wayland session when the window title was very, very long. Uh, they fixed screen recording and the, th and the task manager thumbnails uh, when you use an NVIDIA GPU on Wayland as well. Basically a ton of small fixes to make the Wayland session more robust and work better. It's it's to be expected, basically. I think the Wayland support is now basically complete, including with Plasma 6, with the fact that uh, the, the, the compositor crashing will not take down all your apps with it. I think it was one of the big hurdles left uh, for Wayland, so that's going to be fixed in Plasma 6. But it doesn't mean that everything is 100% polished. They support everything that is needed in the Wayland protocol to have a fully functioning session, but there are still some issues and some bugs. That's to be expected. If, if we think about it, the, the full, fat, Wayland finished support only came in 5.27. So it's normal that there are still some issues here and there. Now, on top of that, they also worked on a few applications. Uh, Arc, the archive manager, now has a new welcome screen, uh, basically similar to what Kate got. Uh, if you don't like those welcome screens, there's always a check mark uh, at the bottom that lets you disable them. If you just want to open your app and have the regular interface, you can. But if you want a more user-friendly experience uh, with these applications, including now Arc, well, you can, and so it lets you reopen recent archives, it lets you create a new archive, open one in one click, and stuff like that. Now, Ocular, the PDF and document viewer, also got a small revamp on its toolbar. It's been reorganized, so the various features are placed more logically. It now shows the view mode button by default. Uh, it's just a little bit of usability fixes. And the Info Center app uh, now got a better sidebar. If you used that app before, you know that you had to dig in and out of subcategories, just going in one, the sidebar would change to reflect the contents of that subcategory, you had to go back to see the other items. Now they just flattened that sidebar, uh, just like in the settings, basically, uh, in most of the settings. Uh, so you have small subcategory titles, but they're all in the same list, which is way easier to navigate and way better. And so all of these changes except the one for the Info Center, will also make it to current installations of Plasma, either through Plasma 5.27.4 or through KDE Gear, which is basically the updates to the applications that KDE ship, apart from the crucial ones like Dolphin, System Settings, and Info Center, basically. Okay, now let's talk about GNOME. Uh, they have worked on their applications and also on Libadvita, and there are some interesting additions there. So first, uh, they have improved GNOME Builder a lot. 
because while there are no new features, you now can personalize your workflow by changing the keyboard shortcuts, which is something developers probably enjoy doing. So it's really good that now you can. And they did it well because in throughout the program, all the keyboard shortcuts that you personalized will be displayed with the new shortcuts as well, which is really nice. So that's a good improvement, I think. Now, they also worked on libadvita, which is, if you don't know, the library that developers can use to build GNOME applications. Uh, you use GTK for the basics, but if you want to display widgets like buttons, uh, notifications, info bars, animations, tabs, etc., you use libadvita widgets if you want your GTK app to follow the GNOME guidelines. So it's basically the core library that defines everything you can use uh, to have a GNOME app and also how things look because the theme, the Advita theme is baked in. So all the widgets will look the same on all applications, on all systems, which is kind of the point of libadvita in the first place, to have coherency, consistency, and the developer can know that their app will work in the exact same way on all systems, so bug reports are way easier to handle. So they added a new component called Advita Banner, which is basically a little blue drop-down banner that appears under the header bar of your GNOME app and just gives you a button. It's basically what you would find in uh, in uh, the file manager when you're in the, in the trash, in the recycle bin. Uh, you have that small banner saying, hey, you can empty the trash, and it only displays if there's something to empty. So that, that used to be a GTK info bar, which was a component of GTK, but now they implemented it in libadvita, so they have more control over how it works and how it looks. They also added a new tab overview widget, which basically gives you a grid, a visual grid of all your tabs. Every tab has a miniature, a thumbnail, and so you can navigate all your tabs like this. It's mainly designed for mobile applications, uh, but it can also be used in desktop apps because it, it scales with the size of the window. Uh, and console, the terminal manager, already has it. And Epiphany uh, got a merge request to add it as well, so it should appear in a lot of applications really soon. And to accompany this, they also added a button that lets you access this view and displays the number of open tabs. So I think it would be cool on desktop apps to combine this workflow with the regular tabs being visible. Because for now, for example, let's say on Firefox, when you have more tabs than what the window can display, you only have that little drop-down list with window titles. And honestly, it would be way easier to just click a button, have all my tabs displayed in, a, in an expose view, and click on the one I want. I know there are extensions that do this for web browsers, but having that inside of apps natively is pretty cool, and so now it's in libadvita. And all those libadvita widgets also got some small bug fixes, and they all got improved accessibility as well, which should be really nice for people with impaired vision or that need a screen reader, stuff like that. Now, on top of that, uh, the GNOME team also worked on applications. Uh, there's, well, the GNOME team, let's say GNOME app developers, because it's not necessarily the GNOME team, uh, the core GNOME team that works on these apps. Uh, so app developers worked on Tube Converter. If you don't know about it, it's an application that lets you download videos from YouTube or other, like PeerTube, other websites, basically. You can download them as uh, video files or audio files, and so it's been completely rewritten in C-sharp, which means it should, well, they say it means it should be more stable and more usable, which is good because I had a ton of issues with it, with it recently. And you can also download full-on playlists using it, which is cool. 
uh, Denaro, the personal finance manager. Now lets you change the currency per account. It's an application where you can add various bank accounts, uh, manage uh, what's going in, what's going out, and basically generate a PDF to know where your bank account is at. Uh, it's, it's a very cool application. I started using it uh, a few days ago and I really enjoy what it's doing. I don't know if I have the the will to keep logging in everything as I go, but I'll try to do it. So basically now you can change the currency for certain accounts. Uh, you can add a password to the PDFs you export for your basically your, your overview of all your accounts. And it can now import QIF and OFX files, which if I'm not mistaken are Quicken uh, files, uh, which means that you should be able to import that. Uh, that's really cool. And so I love seeing that. I love seeing all these updates to Libadvita and to all the apps. You might argue that it's kind of killing uh, theming, that the combination of Flatpak and Libadvita are kind of making it that all GNOME apps look like GNOME and, and Advita. And you could argue that it's a bad thing. But honestly, when you see the benefits to the GNOME app ecosystem, the number of apps that have emerged since Libadvita has been, has been unveiled and, and, and developed... I, I can live with that. I mean, I'd rather have a Blender desktop that looks like Advita exclusively, but a ton of really cool apps, including more complex ones now, than have no apps, but they can all look exactly like I want them to. I, I think the trade-off is good here. Okay, now we can talk about Thunderbird. Uh, if you remember, Thunderbird has basically entered in an agreement with the K9 Mail developer. It's an application, an email app for Android, an open source email app for Android. And Thunderbird has entered an agreement with them to basically turn K9 Mail into the Thunderbird Android client, uh, which is really cool because it will enable automatic sync between Thunderbird and the Android client without having to re-add your, your mail account. You can just add, I think they will use Firefox accounts uh, to sync between those two which means that all your customizations, all your folders, all your preferences and settings will be carried uh, to the Android app or another desktop or the Thunderbird desktop client. So that's really cool. So it's not called Thunderbird Mail just yet on Android. I think they want to basically revamp the interface and add certain features. And once it's at a point they're comfortable with, then it will be renamed uh, Thunderbird Mail for Android. And the K9 Mail brand will probably stop existing but since it's open source, anyone can still reuse all those developments, all those all those bits of code, and recreate K9 Mail, maybe call it something else, maybe keep the name, who knows. And so now they have a full-time developer to help uh, with that development on K9 Mail, which is really nice. And they started with a redesign of the message view. Uh, there's a new header, there's a new details pane that give you a lot more info on the email you're currently viewing. It looks nice, it's well integrated, and it should already make it... Uh, it make its way into the next stable release of K9 Mail because they are not just waiting for the app to be called Thunderbird to release everything. They still publish regular updates to K9 Mail, which is really nice as well for people who already use it. Uh, the message list also received some changes. Uh, they have better text alignment, better white space. Uh, basically, it looks a lot better. And they have improved the click areas to star messages or to click on the contact image, which lets you select uh, emails. So it should be easier to interact with your email without necessarily opening them. And you also get a, a density layout changer, uh, which gives you options between compact, default, and relaxed mode. And it's nice because, well, when I saw the compact screenshot first on their blog post, I was like, wow, this does not look usable at all. It's super cramped. There's a lot of text. It just did not look good. 
But when you look at the relaxed mode or even the default one, then there's a lot more breathing space and it's a lot easier on the eyes. And I think it's the one that they should definitely ship, like the default one. Well, it's called default for a reason, I guess. But the compact mode just feels like it's for really power email users, email power users, because damn, that's not usable at all. Now, all these changes to the message list are also available already, but in the beta version of Canine Mail, and they will make it to the stable version after they collect some user feedback. And that's interesting because they have what, what, it, what looks like a very open development process with this application, which is they are working on those features. They are releasing it on the beta version. People can test them out, give some feedback, and they only commit to these UI changes if and only if enough people have signed off on them and if the feedback is positive. If people say, it's not a good interface, we don't like it, it's not easy to interact with, they, they're not going to ship that as stable and say, you know what, we decide, we're Thunderbird. Uh, they, they're they're going to revamp and review, and that's nice. I, I like what they're doing. And I'm, honestly, I really like everything that Thunderbird is doing recently. Uh, what they showed of the new desktop client and what they showed of the new Android app, it just looks really good. And I can't wait to use those new versions. Now, still speaking of open source, uh, there's a surprising bit of news. Uh, it looks like that I might finally be able to accept the requests of NordVPN as a sponsor on my YouTube channel, because they now completely open source their Linux client and the libraries that form the backbone of this client. Now, jokes aside, they, I have been contacted a lot by NordVPN uh, to sponsor the channel, but since they were not open source, I always declined, uh, because... A VPN that is not open source, I don't really trust, honestly. Uh, now that it is, maybe, why not? I mean, a lot of people on YouTube are already super sick of seeing NordVPN. It's kind of a running joke, just like Raid Shadow Legends. Basically, it's the thing you see everywhere on every channel. But if it's a good product, and it looks like it is, and if it's open source, I don't see why not. So maybe you'll see NordVPN sponsorships in the future on the channel. Now, jokes aside, it's good to see another VPN service go the open source route. And so what did they open source? Well, it's the whole Linux client, basically. They had a Linux client. It's now fully open source under the GPL v3. And they also open source two more libraries, uh, one called Liptelio, which apparently is the backbone of all the Nord VPN applications. This one is also open source under the GPL v3. And they open sourced Libdrop, which is apparently a file sharing library, uh, and it's also under the GPL v3. And so what they're saying is that they hope it will help make the Linux, the Linux client better, or it will help spawn new clients for Linux altogether. Uh, maybe clients developed specifically for KDE, for GNOME, or for, for other desktop environments, which is nice. They also released something called MeshNet, uh, which is apparently a kind of point-to-point -point VPN between your computers. Uh, you're creating a secure tunnel between multiple devices that you own wherever they are in the world, and it's basically your own private VPN between your devices. This feature already existed before, but it used to be paywalled apparently, and now it's available for everyone for free. And it's also GPLv3 from what I could see, so that's actually really cool. Now, apparently the clients for the other operating systems are still closed source for now on Windows, macOS, and I'm guessing Android and iOS maybe, but since they basically open source the backbone, the, the, this Liptelio library, uh, which is the core of their clients, it would be surprising if we didn't see uh, clients for Windows, Mac OS, Android, iOS, whatever, uh, using this open source code and just, just clients rewritten from the ground up to be open source. I think it's interesting and I think it's cool. And 
I don't really understand the business rationale behind it. I think maybe they were just tired of maintaining a Linux client and they decided to open it up. Uh, let's hope it, it's not just a, a way to basically give up on Linux support, open sourcing the thing. They open sourced the supporting library because they just didn't have any choice if they wanted people to take this open sourcing seriously. And I hope it's not that. I hope they, they just don't think, hey, you know what, now the community can handle it and we don't even have to release a single feature for it. I hope that's not what they meant, uh, but in any case, it's cool. That's another open VPN. It's nice. Now, we haven't talked about AI at all in this podcast, which is uncommon, so we're going to talk about AI right now. Uh, apparently, Microsoft, which is one of the biggest AI players in the world right now, apparently they just laid off their responsible AI team. Uh, they had a recent big wave of layoffs at the company, and so only the people that code the AI were kept and the people that were drafted to see if that AI is ethical, those people were not kept. Uh, they were fired. Uh, Microsoft says that they still have something called the Office of Responsible AI, which is meant to create rules and principles to govern AI. But the employees seem to believe that the ethics and society team, uh, the people who were just laid off, were critical to make sure that all the guidelines that were written by that uh, Office of Responsible AI were actually translated into product features and design. Uh, basically, what they have left in terms of ethical AI is a team of people that will create vague moral guidelines, uh, but these won't be coming with the implementation details so they can actually be followed because the team that did this translation from principled and, and principles and guidelines to actual feature sets and actual how we should implement the AI, what we should put in place as blockers uh, to make sure that things go smoothly. The people who did that were fired, they were laid off. And so this now defunct team apparently also was looking uh, into the risks posed by Microsoft's adoption of OpenAI in its suite of products. So basically they were looking at, are there any risks if we put OpenAI in Word or PowerPoint or Excel or Outlook or whatever? And so now they won't be looking into that at all. Uh, the team was 30 people at its peak and had already been downsized to seven people in October. And what's worse, the remaining employees were told in October that basically the reason is the company wants to move swiftly, get these AI models into the customer's hands at a very high speed, and when they were asked to reconsider, to say, you know what, we're doing important work here and you really need somebody to implement those ethical guidelines, they said, no, I don't think I will reconsider. The, the VP of AI said that word for word. Uh, they were asked, will you reconsider? And they said, I don't think I will. And then they spewed some bullshit about corporate pressure and not having the full view of the topic. It's the typical company bullshit. They just wanted to be the first to be associated with AI, with commercial AI products. They don't care what it means. They don't care what it takes. Uh, they don't care about responsibility or doing AI right. They just want to be fast. They just want to be there before Google or Facebook or anyone else manages it. That's it. So they don't want people telling them, hey, wait a second, maybe we shouldn't be going that fast on this topic. Maybe we should be looking at how to implement this with a higher degree of, uh, of correct answers or anything. They don't want that because they want to be fast. They don't want to be good. They don't want to be responsible. They don't want to be ethical. They just want to be fast. 
they just don't care about the people, the implications, or the societal transformations that AI brings. They just want to have a commercial product so people say, oh, AI, yay, I use Microsoft because they want that brand to be associated. They missed so many of the recent bandwagons. They missed mobile entirely. They completely missed VR. Well, VR. I mean, everybody missed VR. It sucked. Nobody uses it. Uh, but they completely missed mobile. They completely missed social networks. They never got into that. I don't think they want to miss the next bandwagon. And since everybody seems to think that, no, it's not the metaverse, uh, it's actually... Well, they got into the metaverse bandwagon. It failed hard. And so they're seeing AI and they're like, okay, now we need to be on the latest trend. Uh, we need to regain that edge in technology. And so they don't care how they achieve that. They don't care if it hurts jobs or people or, or if it hurts the very fabric of our society in terms of what people believe to be true when just an AI invented something out of the blue. They don't care. They just want a commercial product. And I just really love to see it, if I can be sarcastic. Okay, now let's move on to more fun stuff with the gaming news. And first, uh, if you were waiting for the Steam Deck to go down in price before you bought one, well, now is your time. Uh, as far as I know, the Steam sale, the latest Steam sale is still on. And not only do you have discounts on games, but you have discounts on the Steam Deck. It's a relatively small 10% price cut, uh, probably temporarily for the duration of the sale. And this discount applies in all the regions where the Steam Deck is sold, including Asia, where it just launched very recently. And so this means that the entry-level device is 377 euros, should probably be 377 US dollars as well. And that's honestly the one I would recommend you get uh, because you can just expand the storage with an SD card and the speed differences between the version with an SSD, the version with eMMC storage or just games installed on an SD card is absolutely negligible. Uh, you maybe are going to lose one second per loading screen. It's nothing. Uh, I just never notice when a game is installed on an SD card or on the, on the eMMC storage of my deck. I just don't see the difference. So you should probably, if you want a deck, now is a good time to buy one and you should probably go for the entry level model and buy a big ass SD card that you can slot in and install all your games on. I think it supports up to one terabyte or something or two terabytes, so you, you, you won't be limited much. And if you're an existing Steam Deck user, you also got a new system update, which is a very small one. It's version 3.4.6. It basically just adds the new Mesa graphics driver version 23.1. But it does, fixes, it does fix issues for Forza Horizon 5, for Wolong Fallen Dynasty, it adds ray tracing to Doom Eternal, and it fixes graphical corruption issues in the Resident Evil 4 uh, remake, at least on the demo, I think. So it's still a nice update. And you also get, uh, apparently, I think it's now live, uh, you get the LAN transfer of your games between computers that run Steam. So if you already had installed a game on your main PC, whether it runs Linux or, or, or Windows, uh, if you install the game on Steam, now your Steam Deck, for example, will be able to download the game from your local network instead of re-downloading it all from the Steam servers off of the internet, which means it's going to be way faster for most people because I think my LAN transfer speeds are like 72 megab megabytes, megabits, megabits per second. 
no megabytes it's megabytes it's 72 megabytes per second uh on average when downloading from the steam servers even with my fiber connection is generally around 25 uh, megabytes per second which is just not as fast uh, definitely so it's going to be a huge time saver and if you have data caps uh, at home well you won't be using them either if you want to re-download the same game so that's pretty cool and it also means that you could basically have a giant external disk with your games library on it and every time you have a new pc or a new thing you could just re-download all your games from that external library uh, and not just not use any of your onboard storage for any of your computers i think it's a good thing and i think that's what i'm gonna do because when i test a new laptop for example when system 76 or tuxedo or slimbook send me something to review i always install one or two games to do some performance testing and these games are what takes the longest, uh, basically, because it's going to take three or four hours to just download Shadow of the Tomb Raider or Horizon. If I can just download them on my local network, it's going to take minutes. And so I'm going to be able to jump into those tests and not have to plan all that much in advance when I want to set off some time to download those games. It's going to completely saturate my internet connection because Steam does that. Sometimes it even crashes my internet connection if I don't limit the speeds at which it downloads. It's just going to be a way better experience. So I think that's a really good feature and I'm glad they added it. And I'm going to end this podcast on that positive note. So I hope you enjoyed listening to it. As always, if you want more details about any of these articles or, or pieces of news, there are links in the show notes. If you want to support the podcast and you really like it, there are also links in the show notes as well. And thank you all for making this podcast a success because it's apparently a very big one uh, for tech now. It's, uh, it's actually g- getting about 2,000 listens per week, which is huge and apparently puts it in the five-person biggest podcast in the world. So thank you, everyone, for listening, and thank you all for making this a, a resounding success. And now I guess you will hear me in the next one. If you went through all that podcast and got to that very second, then you probably enjoyed enough to come back next week. So, bye!